I'd like for the rest of you to turn with me in your Bibles this morning to Romans chapter 5. And we're in verse 12 today, and this actually uh, turns a corner for us. I've been saying this for a long time, but you know the three R's of education, don't you? Repeat, repeat, repeat. <laughs> That's what makes it stick, is you just uh, you focus there for a while and you hang in there. I hope that you might be able, as we go along, to form in your mind an outline of the book of Romans, because if you know the flow of Romans and Paul's argument, you have a hook to hang your theological hat on, you'll always know what he's talking about, and uh, beginning at the uh, about uh, verse, oh, I don't know, 21 or so of chapter 3, all the way to um, chapter 5, verse 11, Paul has been talking about how Jesus is the answer to the problem of our sin history, our sins that we have committed. And this morning, as we celebrate communion, there are two elements to the to the Lord's table. The blood of Jesus cleanses us from all sins. It washes our sins away. It justifies us before God. It makes us righteous in His sight. But the bread reminds us of the death of Christ, which was followed by a resurrection. And Paul is about to explain to us that the cross is a remedy not only for our sin history, but for our sin problem. Because as the scripture makes clear, we sin because we are sinners, not the other way around. We are not sinners because we have sinned. We actually commit sins because we are sinners. It's important for us to understand our nature and where we have lived apart from Christ in order to understand how to apply the second effectiveness of the cross, which is the solution to the problem that I have that makes me sin. And it's in Romans 5, 12 through 21 that Paul explains this. Follow along as I read, please. Therefore, just as through one man sin entered into the world, and death through sin, so death spread to all men, because all sinned. For until the law, sin was in the world. But sin is not imputed where there is no law. Nevertheless, death reigned from Adam until Moses, even over those who had not sinned <coughs> in the likeness of the offense of Adam, who is a type of him who was to come. But the free gift is not like the transgression. For if by the transgression of the one the many died, much more did the grace of God and the gift by the grace of that one man, Jesus Christ, abound to the many. And the gift is not like that which came through the one who sinned. For on the one hand, the judgment arose from one transgression, <clears throat> resulting in condemnation. But on the other hand, the free gift arose from many transgressions resulting in justification. 
For if by the transgression of the one, death reigned through the one, much more those who receive the abundance of grace and the gift of righteousness will reign in life through the one Jesus Christ. So then, as through the one transgression there resulted condemnation to all men, even so, through one act of righteousness, there resulted justification of life to all men. For as through one, the one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners, even so, through the obedience of the one, the many will be made righteous. And the law came in that the transgression might increase, but where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. That as sin reigned in death, even so, grace might reign through righteousness to eternal life, through Jesus Christ our Lord. Father, I want to ask this morning that you would open our hearts and our minds, our spiritual understanding, to understand the significance of what Paul is saying to us here by the inspiration of your Spirit. You have written these things for our benefit. It's here because it's important. And I pray that you would give us understanding and illumination this morning, that we might see uh, what our need is and how to appropriate the cross of Jesus Christ. I ask it in his name and for his glory. Amen. I want you to look back with me to verse 12. I want to read this verse again. And I want you to think about the implications of what Paul is saying. Therefore, just as through one man sin entered the world, and death by that sin, so that death has passed upon all men, or so death has passed to all men, for all have sinned. What are the implications of that? As you think about the words of the text. For by one man, sin entered the world. You know, the first thing that comes to my mind is, the scripture says, through one man, sin entered the world. There are a lot of people that would like to blame it on Eve, and say that she's the problem. But that's not what the scripture says. The scripture says, through one man, sin entered the world. You know, (laughs) thank you, Angela. You know, um, right at the outset, Adam wanted to lay the blame on Eve. You know, as soon as uh, God showed up in the garden after the sin and said, uh, Where are you? What have you done? Did you eat of the fruit of the tree that I told you not to eat of? What did Adam say? The woman that you gave me. So whose fault is it? God and Eve. (laughs) The woman that you gave me, she gave me the fruit and I ate of it. You know, there are some religions that even actually incorporate that into their theology in a formal way. Uh, Islam believes that if a man sins, it is the woman's fault in every case. If a man sins sexually, if a man sins immorally, it is always the woman's fault. If it weren't for the woman, the man would, would not have the problem. And so it's always her fault. That's why they cover them from head to toe and keep them locked away at home 
and don't let anybody see them and don't want them educated and don't want them out and about because they cause men all this grief. But I want you to know that the Bible says in unequivocal terms through one man sin entered the world. And there's actually a reason for that because we don't know fully from the scriptures how much Eve comprehended about the situation that she was in. We have no record in the scripture that tells us for sure that God gave her the same information that he gave Adam or if it was his responsibility to explain it. We don't know how much uh, she comprehended about the implications of that. But we do know this, that Adam clearly understood what he was doing. We know that he had heard directly from God, there is one tree that you cannot eat from, it is the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, and in the day that you eat of it, you will die. And Adam understood that. And the Bible indicates to us that when Adam was presented with the opportunity to make that choice, he was not confused, he was not deceived, he was not under any illusions, he deliberately, intelligently, purposefully, and willfully turned his back on God and chose to go his own direction. And that is why at the feet of Adam is laid the responsibility for sin that entered the world. And so the first implication is that sin came into the world through one man's direct and defiant and willful disobedience. The second thing that is very interesting in this verse is that not only did sin enter into the world through this one man, listen to what it says. Where was sin before Adam's rebellion? Where was sin? Outside of the world. It did not exist on this planet. Through one man's sin entered the world. He was the one that opened the door that led it onto this planet. You say, well, Satan had sinned. Satan had become the devil. He had turned away from God. Yes, but he did not have permanent residence or rightful authority on this planet before the sin of Adam. This planet was like a cocoon. It was a paradise. It was a place created by God for Adam and Eve uh, to live and, and to uh, develop and multiply and fill the earth with godliness and holiness and purity and love. It was only after Adam's sin did sin come into the planet. And look at the next phrase and death through sin. Now think with me very carefully about the implication of that. When did death enter the world? After the sin of Adam. What does that mean? You know, if there, uh, there's a lot about 
the early chapters of Genesis that I cannot fully explain. I'm not confused about them. Um, I don't uh, believe that there's much of an open door there for theistic evolution. But one thing I do know, and to me it completely takes the sail of the wind out of the sails of any evolutionary hypothesis, and that is this. Until the sin of Adam, there was no death on this planet. Not just human death, there was no death. No fish died, no worm died, no snail died, no bird died, no giraffe died. Nothing died before the sin of Adam. Death is a direct consequence of sin, and God is not the author of death. He is the author of life. In God is life. He is the source of life. And when he created animated life, not the kind that has roots in the ground, but the kind that can move around, when God created animated life and ultimately created man from the dust of the ground and breathed his own spirit into man's nostrils and man became a living soul, God created life. And until Adam sinned, the first record of death is when God himself destroyed some animals, killed them, and shed their blood to make a covering of skins for Adam and Eve to cover their shame, which was not particularly sexual in nature, but it was that they were now exposed in their, in their ugliness, the nakedness of their soul that needed covering because of their shame, and that's the first record of any death on this planet. And so it's very hard for me in any way to be a, an evolutionist of any stripe, because the evolutionary process requires a lot of dying before you get to the higher life forms. And according to the scripture, there was no death in this planet until Adam sinned. And as a consequence of that, the scripture says, sin came into the world, and death through sin, so that death passed upon all men. Now, why is Paul spending so much time telling us this? Because he wants us to understand that sin is not just an action. It is not just a behavior. It is an infection. It's a, 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 a principle. It's a law. In fact, it's a domain. It's a realm in which we now live. And sin is characterized principally by autonomy or rebellion. What did God say? What, I mean, what did the devil say in the garden? Think about it. Has God really said, you shall not eat of this tree? God has told you that because he knows that in the day that you eat of it, you will become like him, knowing good from evil. What is it to be like God? And by the way, I should ask, before you even think of that, before the, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, 
What did Adam and Eve know about good and evil? Only what God told them. They were dependent upon God for information. They were dependent upon Him for wisdom. They were dependent upon Him for direction. What Satan was offering them was autonomy. They no longer had to be connected to God. They could do it their own way. They could make their own decisions. They could control their own destiny. I want to read you the words, the lyrics of a song that in my opinion is the most ungodly, wicked, and wretched song that has ever been sung in the history of humanity. Don't worry, they're not X-rated. It's not written by some death metal band. It's not written by somebody using the F word every four lines or every four words. It's a song that is so popular that it is the most frequently played song at British funerals. It was played in 1992 at the Winston Cup Awards Banquet in honor of Alan Kowicki. William Shatner opened the AFI Lifetime Achievement Award tribute to George Lucas by performing a spoken word version of the song. Former German Chancellor Gerhard Schroeder requested the song for his final military send-off prior to the inauguration of Angela Merkel. At the 2006 Balton Celtic season opener, a video tribute was shown to honor Red Arbok, who had died days earlier. The former Serbian president and indicted war criminal Slobodan Milosevic was said to be a huge fan of the song and would play it repeatedly in his prison cell in The Hague during his trial for crimes against humanity. The identification of this song with Sinatra, hint, hint, became so strong and the, and the song so iconic that the Soviet government of Mikhail Gorbachev jokingly referred to its policy of non-intervention in the eternal affairs of other Warsaw Pact countries. You get the picture? They can be autonomous. We're not going to fool with them anymore. They called it the Sinatra Doctrine. The song, written words and music by Paul Anka, actually the lyrics were inspired by a French song of similar melody, but the words were written by Paul Anka, and this is how they go. And now the end is near, and so I face the final curtain. My friend, I'll say it clear, I'll state my case of which I'm certain. I've lived a life that's full. I traveled each and every highway, and more, much more than this, I did it my way. Regrets? I've had a few, but then again, too few to mention. I did what I had to do. I saw it through without exemption. I planned each charted course, each careful step along the byway, and more, much more than this, I did it my way. Yes, there were times I'm sure you knew when I bit off more than I could chew, but through it all, when there was doubt, I ate it up and spit it out, I faced it all, and I stood tall and did it my way.
I've loved, I laughed and cried, I've had my fill, my share of losing. And now as tears subside, I find it all so amusing to think I did all that. And may I say, not in a shy way, oh no, oh no, not me, I did it my way. Listen to the last stanza. It's amazing. For what is a man? What has he got? If not himself, then he has not. To say the things he truly feels and not the words of one who kneels. The record shows I took the blows and did it my way. Yes, it was my way. To Frank Sinatra's credit, for whatever it's worth, he claimed to have loathed the song, even though he made it famous and it made him a lot of money. (laughs) His family said he detested it because it was so self-centered. I hope that's true. don't know why he made it so popular if it was. But the last line tells it all. To say the things he truly feels and not the words of one who kneels. There is the epitome of the problem of sin. It's not rape. It's not murder. It's not genocide. It's not abortion. It's not gross immorality. It's not homosexuality. It's not terrible family lives and broken marriages. It's not filth and vulgarity and any of those things that are the deepest problems of human beings. They all stem from a common root. And that root is, I did it my way. I want my way. I want to be in charge. I want to call the shots. I want to run my life. I want to make my own choices. I want to determine my own destiny. I want to be in control. The desire for that is simply nothing more or less than the desire to be God. And that's what Satan offered to Adam in the garden when he suggested, when you eat this, you'll be like God. The problem is, the moment you set yourself up as God, you separate yourself from God, because by definition, there can only be one God. There can only be one person in charge. There can only be one person in control. There can only be one person who holds the destiny of the whole universe in his hands, and that person is not you. And when you choose to go that route and set yourself up in that that realm, you have opposed God and defied Him. And there's a problem with that. He has the life. He has all the life. He is the life. There is no life anywhere else. When you set yourself up as God and move away from Him, you become the walking dead. Remember that cult horror film lock it in your brain the night of the walking dead or whatever you know do you remember that the living dead 
that kind of a deal. That is human beings apart from Jesus Christ. That is what mankind is. We are born in sin, born in death. We're born dead. And we become the walking dead. Because there's life only in God. God had said to Adam and Eve, the day that you eat of it, you will surely die. What they didn't realize was that though they had not stopped breathing, they had surely died. God had vacated the premises. They were on their own. They could have it their way. But it meant doing it without God. And since He's the source of life, it meant living without Him. That's the essence of the sin realm. And Paul says that that sin was in the world and spread to all men until the law, sin was in the world. But sin is not imputed when there is no law. Nevertheless, death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those who had not sinned in the likeness of the offense of Adam, who is a type of him who was to come. Now, the language Paul uses here may be a bit difficult to follow, but let me help you by just simply summarizing and, and, and clarifying what he's getting at here. Paul is saying that even though human beings were not violating rules and regulations, they were still sinners, and the proof is they died. Do you follow that? If you contract a disease that is universally fatal in every case, you may have good days and bad days. You may have days when you look healthy. But the fact of the matter is, you're going to die. If you have a disease that is universally fatal, you're going to die. No matter how good you look or how bad you look on any given day, that's the proof that you have the disease. Not the fact that you have symptoms all the time, but the fact that the disease is there, and one day you're going to quit breathing, and they're going to do the autopsy and say, yep, they had the disease. Paul says the proof that sin was in the world, even though there were no transgressions, is that people died. Because apart from God, there is no life. And so if death was in the world, that's the proof positive that sin was reigning. Now, the difference between sin and transgression is kind of a, a, a sideline, but it's sort of an important point. Transgression is specifically violating a law, whereas sin is a nature that is going on all the time in your life. It's an attitude, it's a permeation of self-centered being. Let me explain it this way. If you come to a stop sign, this is on my mind because I was driving over here this morning quite early and there was hardly a car on the road. If you come to a stop sign and you just slow down and then kind of roll through because there's no traffic, you have committed a transgression. You know why? Because there was a sign there that said stop. And it's a law of traffic that you obey that sign. If you roll that sign, you are transgressing the law. The proof is that if an officer sees you, 
he can literally write on the ticket the paragraph, the, the, the chapter, the verse, the code in the Illinois state law of traffic laws that you violated. You have transgressed a specific commandment. The octagonal red thing that says S-T-O-P means come to a full halt. And if you don't, you're a transgressor. If, however, you come to the sign, and you come to a full stop, and you look around and there's no traffic, and you say to yourself, this is ridiculous. I hate this stopping all the time. This irritates the life out of me. I want to go. If it weren't for the fact that that guy's sitting down the block, I would not do this. You have not transgressed, but you have proved that you're a sinner. Because you have an attitude that says, I want to do it my way. I want to go when it says stop. That's the proof that there's sin in your life. And so Paul is telling us in this passage that even before the Ten Commandments, even before specific laws of God, sin was reigning. And the proof was men were rebels and they died. Even if they didn't have a specific law to break, they still had an attitude. It was the attitude of Paul Anka. I did it my way. I want to do it my way. To say the things I truly feel, and not the words of one who kneels. I have no God but me. I did it my way. The second thing that Paul tells us in this passage is found in verses 15 to 17. But the free gift is not like the transgression. For if by the transgression of the one the many died... Much more did the grace of God and the gift by the grace of the one man, Jesus Christ, abound to the many. And the gift is not like that which came through the one who sinned. For on the one hand, the judgment arose from one transgression, resulting in condemnation. But on the other hand, the free gift arose from many transgressions, resulting in justification. For if by the transgression of the one death reigned through the one, much more those who receive the abundance of grace and the gift of righteousness will reign in life through Jesus Christ. Now in these verses, Paul is explaining to us that Adam is a type of Christ. When I say type, I mean he is, he is a symbol, he is an analogy to Jesus Christ. In one respect, but there is a difference in another respect. And the difference is important. Adam is like Christ in that in this one person, there is either death or life. He is a representative. In this case, Adam, as our distant parent, he and Eve, rebelled against God, before they had children, don't ask me what would happen if they'd had children first. That's hypothetical. You can spend a lot of time debating those points 
and, and just be pooling your ignorance, okay? So don't go there. <clears throat> but they sinned before they had children. They were the head of the race, and they made a choice. And I want you to think of it as, as an infection that they permitted to happen, not simply as an act. Because if you understand what happened when they sinned, you will understand what follows. When they sinned, they permitted sin to enter the world. They permitted death to enter the world. They literally opened the door to a plague, to an infection. And as soon as they did that, even though they didn't realize it at the moment, their human spirit died. And all of their offspring after them were born dead with the same infection. Because we reproduce spirit, soul, and body. You've heard me talk about that before, but some people think, you know, that human beings procreate and create little bodies, little embryos, and God drops spirits into them when they get ready to be born. You know, there's these angels out there, or there's this soul bank out in the universe somewhere, and, and God puts this little soul in this body. But that is not true. There are several reasons why that's not true. One of them is, if all human beings did was procreate their bodies, God, the author of the soul, could not be dropping sinful souls into human bodies. He doesn't create sin. Human beings reproduce after their kind. They are tripartite, whole persons. And when they reproduce, we reproduce whole people. They have a spirit, a soul, and a body from the instant of conception. That's why abortion is so wrong. Because it's not just a little body until it gets a soul somewhere down the road. It's a whole person from the get-go. The moment sperm and egg come together, there's a whole human being there developing and that human being has a defect the genetic defect of the spirit the spirit is dead and that little person is born dead and sinful and we come into the world like that and adam's sin infected the whole race everyone from adam on is infected by sin with a dead spirit. We're literally born the walking dead, except we're the lying dead, and then the crawling dead, and then the cruising dead, and then the walking dead. But we're dead from the very beginning because of sin. In that respect, Adam is like Jesus, who is the head of a new race, the firstborn of a new creation. But there is one significant difference. Adam and Eve had no children when they sinned, and all of their offspring after that were infected with this sin disease. But when Jesus came into the world and took the form of man and lived among us as a human being, but died a sinless, lived a sinless life and died a death on the cross for our sin, he made a way out of the realm of sin. 
He opened the door out of death and made it possible for us to come back to life. But we have to do it one by one. There are no spiritual children and grandchildren. There are only first-generation Christians. You can't get saved and pass on the saved gene. Every person has to come to Jesus individually. That's the way in which it differs from Adam. He is like Christ in that he is the head of a race. He is different from Jesus in that everyone from Adam on participated in sin. But everyone who comes to Jesus must return one by one. And I want you to understand the imagery. I see it as a bubble, like a big terrarium that we're living in. This ecosystem that is called the reign of sin. It's sin land. And in that reign of sin, there is death and decay. It's a rotten, foul-smelling bubble. But Jesus has broken out of it in resurrection. He paid the price and he opened the door. And when he came out of the grave, he opened the door to light and life. And he says, you can exit this realm and go into that realm. You can have life. You can enter the realm of life. If you will come by faith, I will let you escape the death. And one of the things that is profound for us is that we can be born into this realm of life right now. We need to change the way we think about life and death. Look with me at verses 18 to 21, and then I'll explain that. So, that, <coughs> so then, as through one transgression there resulted condemnation to all men, even so, through one act of righteousness there resulted justification of life to all men. Now, the possibility exists, but it wasn't automatic. The justification of life to all men means that the, the atonement is sufficient for everyone, but not everyone participates. There's, there are other things that have to happen. For through the one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners. Even so, through the obedience of the one, the many will be made righteous. And the law came in that the transgression might increase, but where sin increased, grace abounded more, that as sin reigned in death, even so grace might reign through righteousness to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Now listen to this. Jesus says, I am giving you a way out. If you come back to me, you can have eternal life. This eternal life begins the moment you turn to Jesus Christ. It doesn't start when you die and go to heaven. Many people think, I'm going to die and go to heaven and have eternal life. No, you have eternal life right now. This moment, you have life. You have already passed from death to life if you have come to Jesus Christ. You are living in the realm of life. People without Jesus are dead because they're separated from God. People with Jesus are alive because they've come home to God. 
He is the source. What do I mean by that? Jesus shows up at Mary and Martha's house four days late. And he makes this very bold statement. He says to them, He that lives and believes in me will never die. Do you believe this, Mary and Martha? Now, they were kind of evasive in their answer. They were polite. People have told me, I guess I have that gift. I, I have a way of, of responding that, that's not just a, a straight out and out put down. It kind of, uh, you know, kind of works around the problem a little bit to put the best spin on it possible. I don't mean to be a spin doctor. I'm not confessing to that. But I, I do try to put things in their best light. Mary and Martha thought Jesus was crazy. But they didn't say that. What they said was, we know that you have the words of eternal life. We know that, that, you, that you're life. And we know that everyone will rise again in the resurrection. That's not what Jesus asked. That's how they answered. What he asked was, he said, I am saying to you, Mary and Martha, that if you live and believe in me, you will never die. And they're thinking to themselves, right, Lazarus is rotting in a grave not far from here. He is dead, dead. We buried him. We wrapped him up. We put the spices and the ointment by now, he's stinking. He is dead. What are you talking about? And in essence, Jesus said, come on, I'll prove it to you. Now, Mary and Martha and Lazarus, bless their hearts, they had no idea that they were going to be used as one of the greatest object lessons in the ministry of Christ. They had no idea why he waited four days to show up when they got the message there in plenty of time. They did not know what God had in mind, but they were being chosen by God specially to prove this object lesson. Because when Jesus stood in front of that grave, that tomb of Lazarus, and asked that the door be opened, this is what he said. Lazarus, come out of there. Would anybody in their right mind talk to a dead man? Jesus wasn't talking to a dead man. He was talking to someone that could hear him. Someone who was alive. Someone who was not in that body decaying, but who was nonetheless in a realm where Jesus could speak to him and he could hear. Lazarus was not dead. Only his body had stopped. And when he said, Lazarus, come out of there, Lazarus came back through whatever process into that body and out hobbled Lazarus in the grave clothes. And Jesus said, okay, untie him. He's obviously not dead. If you live and believe in me, you will never die. That's the point. Eternal life begins when you come to Jesus.
And you have it from that moment on, and you will never die. Your body is going to quit if Jesus tarries, but you're not. You will never be separated from God again. You will never be alone. You will never be on your own again. You don't have to worry about doing it your way. You have life in Jesus Christ. You've come home to him. It says that, that, that grace might reign through righteousness to eternal life in Jesus Christ our Lord. We have been invited into the realm of life. Now Paul in the midst of that says this curious thing, but he's, we're going to get to the law in Romans chapter 7, and I really can't wait because Christians have such a big hang up with the law. I, I just can't wait to get there. And I'm going to have some startling things to say. I hope you're all still in the church when I'm done. But anyway, it's very interesting what he says here. The law came in that the transgression might increase. Why in the world would God make transgressions increase? Ah, wait a minute. God didn't make transgressions increase. He didn't make sin increase. God gave the law to point out what was there so we would wake up and smell the roses, or smell something else, actually, so that we would understand that we were dead. You remember I said we're sinners, the stop sign thing? God gave the law simply to point out the sin that was already in the heart. And when he revealed the Ten Commandments, the last six of them, let's just set aside the first four for a moment, but the last six of them are, are just commandments about his character. He says, I don't lie, I don't steal, I don't commit adultery, I don't bear false witness, I don't want what you have, um, you know, I don't murder. That's my nature, so don't you do any of those things. And the moment God said don't do that, we started... We, 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 were, we didn't start, we just continued being who we were, but now we have transgression. Through the law, we have transgressions. They increased, because now we're breaking the rules. There weren't any rules before that. Now we're breaking them right and left. Why would God do that? Because he wanted us to see what was inside. He wanted us to understand our nature. That through the Holy Spirit, He could bring to our minds all the ways that we have broken the law of God so that in conviction we would recognize we need a Savior. The purpose of the law, Paul says in Galatians, is to bring us to Christ. That's its function. It was never to make us holy. Its only purpose was to bring us to Christ. And when we come to look at the law in our sinful state, we see, oh my, I have broken these rules. And if the soul that sins will die, I am a sinner because I have transgressed. Here's the proof. I need a Savior. Now the Holy Spirit has to give that understanding because the law on its own won't do that. But if the Holy Spirit is accompanying the witness of the law, when we're exposed, there is the conviction that I have violated God. And I, I'm in deep trouble. And I need some help. 
And that help is in the person of Jesus Christ. So Paul tells us that the law came in, that sin might abound and increase through the transgressions, but even so, that as we realize our plight, we might realize our hope that is in Jesus Christ. And Paul is telling us all this because he wants us to realize that just as we have escaped the realm of sin's reign into the realm of grace and life, so we can escape the realm of sin's power into the realm of victory and success and vibrant living because of Jesus. He's setting us up for Romans chapter 6 because he's about to tell us that just as the death of Christ atoned for our sins, the life of Christ empowers us to live righteously. Not on the basis of the law, but on the basis of living in a new realm where Jesus reigns through grace. I hope that this helps you understand this this morning. I hope that you recognize that that we are being offered opportunity to live in a new realm called grace. And in that realm to have life. Because we have passed out of death and darkness into light and life in Jesus Christ. And because that transition has taken place, There is a new possibility to live righteously in God. And I'm not talking about a new capacity to keep the rules. Although, quite frankly, when you live godly in Christ Jesus, the rules get kept, interestingly enough. But they don't get kept by rules as such. They get kept by life in Christ. Abiding in the vine produces spiritual fruit. It's automatic. It's natural. It should be just as natural as the sinner sinning. And so Paul is going to take us there and explain the victory that is ours in Christ Jesus. And you can roll up to the stop sign and come to a complete halt and be at peace and not mind. Because I'm carrying that one a little too far, aren't I? Well, stop signs notwithstanding, you get the point. It's not a problem anymore because you have life in Jesus Christ and you live above this world system not dragged down by it. Father, open our eyes to understand your word. Give us comprehension that we might apply faith and believe the life that we have in Jesus Christ. I ask it in his precious name. Amen.